0: But this morning, take your Bibles and open with me to Matthew chapter 21. Now, we've got some background to go over before we actually get into the text of the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple here. We're looking at verses 1 through 17, but I want to give you some introduction and some historical background to better understand what we're about to experience in this part of the life of Christ and his disciples. In Matthew 21, 1, where we're starting this morning through chapter 28, verse 15, I want you to understand that everything in those chapters covers one week of time in Jesus' life with his disciples. This is his last week before his, the, the week will end with his crucifixion and his burial. And the next week starts at the resurrection. So this is one week's time that's covered in this many chapters in the book of Matthew. Now, John in his gospel focuses, chapter 13 through 19, on Jesus in the upper room and the last teaching time that Jesus had with his disciples. Matthew takes a different approach because you remember that Matthew and his purpose for writing his gospel is to present to the Jews Jesus as the Messiah so that they can see him fulfilling Old Testament prophecies, mostly from Isaiah, that show that Jesus is the coming, and the awaited Messiah. So he focuses in chapter 21 through 23 on Jesus's direct confrontation with religious leaders. And in verses or chapter 24, 25, on the last things that he privately did teach his disciples before the betrayal and the crucifixion. You'll remember that he's predicted three times what's going to happen during this week, that he's going to be betrayed, condemned, that he's going to be taken and executed. He's going to die and he is going to be raised again. And even though in Matthew, he's told the disciples that three times, of course, they're still shocked when it actually happens. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 21, that we'll be looking at this week and next week, we have three symbolic actions that Jesus takes. They're really, they are symbolic, but they're really also very purposeful because Jesus does something that's a little contrary to what he's done previously. He does something directly to provoke people so that they might ask the question, could this be the Messiah? Now, you remember before when he healed people, he would tell the disciples, don't say anything. He the people to he heal, keep it quiet. And that, well, why? My hour's not yet. Not everybody can know. This is, this is hidden. It's revealed to some. It's hidden in a mystery to others. That's why I taught in parables. But now it's time for everybody to know. Now it's going to be a provocation on the point of Christ where he's going to come in and take actions that can only be taken to speak of his messianic authority. Jesus is going to show not by the healing and miracles, but by direct confrontation with the religious leaders that he is the Messiah and that they are in trouble because they have so corrupted the truth of God's word and corrupted what even the Messiah was supposed to be when he came. So Jesus is wanting to get a reaction from the crowd that says, could this be the Messiah? We've already seen it happen with the people who are traveling with him from Jericho up to Jerusalem. We're gonna look at two of those today, the royal procession in Jerusalem and the cleansing of the temple. We'll start next week with the withered fig tree and what that means and what that represents. But to do that, to understand the triumphal entry, there's three points of background that we need to cover. Uh, the temple, the Passover, and the difference between being from Galilee and being from Judea. As we start with the text, when they drew near Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. As we have the triumphal entry, we need to understand a few of the dynamics that are happening historically. Historically. The first is that we're going to end up in this passage after the triumphal entry at Jesus cleansing the temple. He's going to go in and overturn the money changers tables. So we have to realize the temple is the focal point for religion and for religious authority in Israel. There were three feasts a year that every male in Israel was expected to make a pilgrimage or attempt to make a pilgrimage to the temple. Passover was the biggest one. It was the center of religious life. And while there would be synagogues in the cities and in the outer regions, it was difficult for those further out to make it to Jerusalem, to actually make it to the temple. Well, here now Jesus is coming to the temple. I wanna put this in context for you because now we look and you see the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, and you see the Dome on the Rock and we see the ruins of the temple compound. And unless you've been there, it's difficult to comprehend that the temple complex at this time as Herod had rebuilt it was over 33 acres. This was a huge complex on the mountain there. As you approached the temple complex, First, you would find Solomon's porch at the Eastern Gate. And we know that there's even churches and Christians that met there in Solomon's porch for teaching and for studying the scriptures, even during the time of the book of Acts. Then there was the outer court. Now, the outer court went all the way around the temple complex. And in fact, if you lay it out and you look at it, it is a mile radius. So that means it's a two mile in diameter space that includes that outer area that is the outer court. It was referred to as the court of the Gentiles. That actually was a general gathering area for all people. Anybody could come into the outer court of the temple compound. People would gather there for teaching. That's where people would come together for festivals and for feast days. We know also at times there were riots that happened in the outer courtyards of the temple. One of those happened when Paul was there. And the people began to riot and the Romans swooped in and stopped it and rescued Paul because they were afraid he was going to be killed in Acts 23 and 24. But what we know is Jesus is going to go into the outer court. And as we look at it, that's where he's going to be overturning these tables and doing these things. Mm -hmm. Just inside was then another outer court that was the outer court for women. And this is where Jewish women could gather. They couldn't go any further into the complex unless they were bringing a sacrifice to the altar. The inner court, Gentiles and unclean Jews were forbidden to enter the inner court. And that was where one would wait with their sacrifices while they were being offered by the priests in that inner court. There were actually several buildings that comprised that. There actually was a room in the inner court for lepers. And this was if you were healed and had to go present yourself to the chief priest to see if you were actually healed. You were housed in the court of the lepers so that they could watch you for a time and make sure they'd quarantine you there and make sure that you were actually healed before they would declare it to be so. There were other different inner courts that were there for the working of the temple. By the way, there was a fence in that area between the outer court, the court for women, and the inner court. And it was referred to specifically as a middle wall of separation. And only the Jewish who were ceremonially clean could pass that wall into the inner courts. And of course, only the priest could go into the temple itself with the holiest of holies in the holy place. Jesus, in Ephesians 2, Paul tells us, came to break down the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. So now there is not Jew or Gentile and Greek, there is one new people, one new nation of God's people taken from all the tribes from every tongue in the world. And the phrase there for the middle wall of separation in Ephesians 2 is a reference to this fence in the temple. This was what kept the Gentiles and the unclean out of God's presence. Jesus removed that by giving himself and his body to be broken. Also, of course, significant at his death that the inner veil was torn from top to bottom, giving people access to God without having to go through a priest other than Christ. The holiest place, once you went inside the temple, this was where the seven-branch candlestick was. There was a golden incense altar, the table for the showbread. There were five other tables arranged for different purposes. The Holy of Holies, when it was originally constructed, held the Ark of the Covenant with the mercy seat, the manna, a sample of manna from the wilderness, and Aaron's budded rod. By the time we get to Herod's rebuilding parts of the temple, this chamber was empty. All of that had disappeared to history. Jesus then comes in to the temple from the gates on the eastern side of Jerusalem, declaring divine authority. He basically comes in and in the triumphal entry and in cleansing the temple, Jesus is provoking the crowds and saying, this is my city. This is my house. He's declaring divine authority over Jerusalem and over the temple. He's actually presenting himself as king and as judge. He's coming to form a new kingdom in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. And in the course of this, when we get to Matthew 24, he says that your house, speaking of this generation, he says, your house will be judged. Not one stone will be left upon another. And we know that in 70 AD, the temple indeed was destroyed by the Romans ending the old Jewish religion formally because the new covenant had been instituted. And in the final parts of Matthew chapter 24 and 25, Jesus predicts his parousia, his second coming, and not just the judgment of Israel, but the final judgment of the entire world. So he's come to establish himself as king and as judge, and he's not being secret about it. When we get to Matthew 23, when when we get to 23, he takes the Pharisees and the Sadducees And literally, verse after verse after verse, curses them because of their false religion, because of their disobedience to the scripture, because of their misleading people when it comes to the truth of God's word. So this is a direct confrontation with the religious leaders of his day. Those who should have been the first to recognize he was the Messiah and oh, who, by the way, knew it, but he wasn't a Messiah to their liking. So they opposed him. You realize that happens in the church today, don't you? People have an image of God. They have an image of Christ in their mind. And if God that is preached from the Bible doesn't match what they have preconceived in their minds, they reject what the Bible says of their worship of God made in their own little idol factory of a heart, Calvin called it. Here, Jesus is coming and revealing the truth. This is happening the week of Passover. We know that Christ is crucified as the Passover lambs are being offered in Jerusalem. One of three annual feasts, this is the largest. And this is what happened at the time when we realized this crowd of people that Jesus has been traveling with from Jericho, mostly all from Galilee from the north, headed to Jerusalem for this week of all that was going to be happening. Jerusalem at this time had a population of around 30,000 people. Pretty big town at that point in history. During the Passover week, it's estimated that there would be between one hundred and 200,000 people in Jerusalem. Now, that's significant when you think about all that happened and all that was going on all of the sacrifices and it was it was to the point that in order to be in Jerusalem they couldn't fit that many people in the boundaries of the city so the chief priests came up with an idea they talked about it and they said for this week every year we are going to move the boundary of Jerusalem we're going to reset the boundary all the way out to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives a mile away so you go out from Jerusalem a mile in every direction and they would draw a new boundary and if you were within that mile You were considered to be in Jerusalem. You could be clean. You could come to the feast and the sacrifices and all of that. That's important, by the way, because Jesus ends up staying at Bethpage and goes from there at Bethpage right there on the eastern side to the Mount of Olives and there then to the Garden of Gethsemane. And then he's arrested and taken to the temple where the Sanhedrin in the inner courts would have judged him and would have condemned him. The other fact that we need to know for background is the difference between Galilee and Judea. Galilee was a northern province of Israel. Between Galilee and Judea was Samaria and Perea. That was not Jewish land. That was Gentile and the Samaritans, half Jewish. They weren't considered truly Jewish, so they were excluded. So you have the Galilean Jews in the north. You have Judea, which includes Jericho, Bethlehem, Jerusalem in the south. Of course, Judea is proud because they have Jerusalem. They have the capital city and they have the temple. So all of the life of an Israelite focused on Judea and on Jerusalem. When we look at Judea to the south and when we see the center that it played in that life, you have to realize that they were more strictly religious because there were more priests and the temple was there. They, they really looked down on those from Galilee. Galilee was right next door. several pagan cities. We talked about this when Jesus was there at Capernaum and then went into an area that was Gentile and shocked everybody because he took his disciples into Gentile territory and healed people and did miracles. Well, because it was closer to pagan cities, because it was more Hellenistic, more Greek in its attitudes, it also was more wealthy, by the way. There was better agricultural and better fishing resources, so there was more wealth. The funny thing was that in Galilee, the people actually had taken and adopted a distinct dialect of Aramaic. So they sounded different than people from Judea. Now, I know you look at that and you can think, you can usually tell where somebody's from in the United States when they talk, right? People can look Texan on the outside, but you know, hey, you got the key to the car? What? You know, I wear my khakis, you know? You hear it. Well, the funny thing is, is we know, we know because somebody unearthed, archaeologically, a series of jokes these people, this archaeologist, who knew? They discovered jokes that were told in Judean circles about the Galileans. Because in this form of Aramaic, the Galileans dropped their H's. That means if a Galilean came to Texas, they wouldn't go to Houston. They'd go to Houston. Have you ever heard somebody tell you how humble they are? That's humble. Honest. Honest. If you drop your H's, you're going to stand out when you talk. So we have a distinct dialect. And by the way, don't we see this in the courtyard when Peter and John are there and the slave girl says, you're a Galilean. I hear it when you speak. And, and Peter, no, no, no. Their speech gave them away. Now, what I liked is to show how dramatic this was. One commentator actually said that a Galilean in Judea would sound like a Texan in New York. All right, you're, you're gonna stand out, aren't you? There. I also found out researching this week, by the way, I did not know this. Did you know that Houston, Texas, is the most most ethnically diverse city in the United States of America? More so than Los Angeles, more so than New York, more so than Chicago. Houston now is the most ethnically diverse city in the United States of America that's what's amazing. Vodi Bauckham said this. He said what he loves about the Olympics is you can usually see an Olympian and just by looking at them, know which country they're from. But when it comes to looking at the Americans, you have no idea that they're wearing America and USA on their shirt because they come from anywhere in the world, but they're here to represent the United States. But as we look at the differences then, we run into a problem. Where was the Messiah supposed to come from? They knew, didn't they? When the wise men came, What what did they know? They knew. The book of Micah tells us he's going to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And everybody said, well, of course the Messiah is going to come from Judea. Bethlehem, by the way, is where the fields are, where the sheep are raised, the lambs are raised, that are taken to the temple in Jerusalem to be sacrificed at Passover. Of course, this is where the Messiah is going to come from. Of course, they didn't understand things sacrificially at that point about Christ. They thought he was coming as a militaristic king to overthrow Rome. Well, now suddenly there's a commotion outside the city gates. And there's a man called Jesus of Nazareth traveling with an entourage of several thousand people, some of them his disciples, from Galilee who all talk funny. Here they are. Again another commentator said you have to realize because the Judeans were more strict religiously because they were proud because the Messiah was going to come from where they were and be one of their number they very much looked down on their northern country cousins. It's it's just it's almost a reverse of the history of the United States between the north and the south. The distinctions were so different that they almost considered themselves two different countries. And what we find at the end of this week of time in history, the southern religious capital would kill a northern prophet. This is what it came down to for them. So Jesus, we're told, comes fulfilling prophecy. As they drew near to Jerusalem, they came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives. This is within that one mile boundary. So Jesus sends two disciples over into a village next to them to find a donkey. Now, the way this is explained, they didn't just go see a donkey and a colt and say, hey, we're taking them. And a person said, no, you're not. This is prearranged. And and the password was the Lord needs them. Literally, this is for God. And it was prearranged. They knew what was going on with the donkeys. The reason for asking for the donkey was so that Jesus could ride on the fold. So this would have been a donkey that had never been ridden before. Uh, Those who train animals have said that more than likely they took the mother along as well because in that kind of a crowd with that kind of a commotion with somebody on his back for the first time, this cult needed to follow mother and was led that way to take Jesus up into town. Well, why would Jesus be on a donkey? The first answer, by the way, is really the simplest because the prophet said he would. It was prophesied, so it would be. But I want you to understand there's more to that. Jesus did this specifically because in a group of thousands of people ascending into the city, Somebody sitting on an animal is going to be more visible than the crowd that is walking. And it's actually going to appear, because this is the way it happened. He is being led with the donkey and leading this crowd of people up toward Jerusalem. So those watching from the gates see this horde of Galileans, who all talk funny, coming with a man on an animal, coming and leading the way. So everybody can see Jesus. This is a provocative moment. This is is no longer a secret. Jesus means to be seen. Now, of course, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. In Zechariah 9, 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now this in Zechariah Corresponds to 2 Samuel chapter 19 and chapter 20. The prophecy was actually uttered when David returns from putting down Absalom's rebellion. Now, Jesus is in the line of David. He's referred to as the son of David as a messianic title. He's going to sit on David's throne forever and ever. Well, when Absalom rebelled against his father and that rebellion was put down, David rode back into Jerusalem in victory. They had won But he was also grieved because his son had been killed. And so when David comes in, the description of him is that he comes humbly and in peace. Not like a conquering hero would come back from battle. He comes meek and broken, humbled. By the way, if you look at Jacob's last prophecy, we can tie this all the way back to Genesis chapter 49 the last prophecy that Jacob made about the last times before he died. Jacob said the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes. What a picture of Jesus Jacob had just before he died, to see these things unfolding in time. So he's riding on this colt, not on foot. He stands out in the crowd, again, prearranged. It is a young donkey, not a war horse, because Jesus was coming to establish a new kingdom by peace, not coercion. And while he was mighty, all of the Gospels make the point, that he came in meekness. We say he's trying to provoke a response and he's trying to stand out, but at the same time, he is doing this with meekness. Now we have to say, what is meekness? Because we think meek means weak. We think meek means wishy-washy. Meek, by its very definition, means strength under control. Not being controlled by rage or by emotion or even by strength or power, but having all of that under control. That's what it is to be meek. So Jesus coming in meekness, I mean, we know this. The disciples at times asked him to call fire down. we call fire down out of heaven on all these false professors? Come on, let's just smash him. God, just kill him. Jesus was meek. He hadn't come at this point to be a judge, but he was about to reveal himself as the judge, and he was about to pronounce judgment. So while he is coming, the disciples went. They found the donkey. Everybody put their clothes on the donkey because they didn't have saddles. Jesus sat on them. Now, this is funny. This this tells you the problem with commentaries, by the way. But pastor who mentored me said, you have to understand the Bible sheds a whole lot of light on those commentaries. We start with the scripture. Then we can go to the commentaries for historical help, for language help, for whatever else. But you know, there's actually a debate because it says a very great multitude. verse, Verse seven, they brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and he sat on them. And people, he sat on both of them, the mom and the colt. Jesus straddled to it? No. He sat on them, the clothes. There's an actual argument about that. He sat on the clothes on the donkey because there was not a saddle. And then the people began to take off their outer cloaks, throw them on the ground. They began to cut down branches and throw them on the ground. And this, this is a historical action. This is not something that has happened for the first time here. This was the equivalent of laying out a red carpet for a royal visit. You see this, that they lay out a red carpet and royalty steps out and walks on the red carpet not on the ground so they were by their actions proclaiming that Jesus was king in second kings 913 each man hastens to take his garment and put it under him on top of the steps and they blew trumpets saying jehu is king this was a pronouncement of royalty the king is coming to jerusalem and Jesus is that king now when they did this the multitude went before and those who followed Cried out saying, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The word Hosanna means save us now. The term son of David is a messianic descriptor. Everybody who knew the scripture knew that that's what that meant. They are proclaiming that Jesus is king, but he's not just king. He's also Messiah and Savior. And they cry out for salvation. Save us now, son of David. And then they quote Psalm 118, 25 and 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the highest of the Psalms of Ascension. Ascending up to Jerusalem to make sacrifices. Then the Psalms we run up, I think, from chapter 113 up to 118, the Psalms of Ascension. Psalm 118 is the height of that. And this is what the verse says. Save now, I pray, O Lord. Translate that. Hosanna. Save us now. O Lord, I pray, send us prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. This crowd around Jesus while he's on this donkey riding into Jerusalem with all of this throng of pilgrims coming up for Passover is crying out to everybody who will listen. This Passover, the Messiah has come and revealed himself. Our king is here. Everything we've been waiting on. He's here. He can save us now. He's the son of David. He's the royal king. He is the Messiah. He is the savior. This was a pronouncement. Now, people wonder, and they ask questions, and they say, how can the crowd at the triumphal entry say he's the king and the Messiah and cry for salvation, and a week later, less than a week later, cry out, give us Barabbas, crucify him? Because that's a different crowd. Here's what we miss when we read too quickly. We have this group of Galileans coming into Jerusalem, who have walked with Jesus, they've seen him heal blind Bartimaeus and others, they've watched the miracles, they've heard him teach, it's no longer a secret, more and more of them are coming to believe as they travel that 18 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem, and by the time they get to the final mile, this crowd is in a frenzy because they are actually partaking in the history, the greatest historical event that they can expect in all of their lifetime, the Messiah that's been promised from the Old Testament on, is here, and there he is, and he's Jesus of Nazareth, and he's our Savior and he's our Messiah. The world will never be the same from today. Verse 10 and when he had come into Jerusalem you see so far in this triumphal entry this is outside with the pilgrims with the Galileans when he had come into Jerusalem all the city was moved saying who is this so the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now we have to understand a couple of things here because we lose things in the translation. When he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved. We think he could be moved in a good way or moved in a bad way. This word literally means they were greatly disturbed. Now, why would a bunch of Judeans inside the city of Jerusalem waiting for a Judean Messiah To come from Judea, be upset by a Galilean throng of crazy people who can't even pronounce words right, saying that Jesus of Nazareth is the awaited Messiah. He can't be. He can't be. The Messiah has to come from Judea. And if he's from Nazareth, that ain't Judea. This crazy country prophet, there's no way. These people have been out in the sun too long. There's no way. They were disturbed. By the way, there was another time the whole city of Jerusalem was disturbed. In Matthew chapter 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen a star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. The same word, disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You understand, Jerusalem now at the triumphal entry is disturbed because this hick from the north, this crowd has anointed Messiah. They are out of their minds. Well, when the city and the king were told that Jesus had been born in Bethlehem of Judea, what was their response? They were greatly troubled. You know why? Because when you hate God, it doesn't matter where the Messiah comes from. You're going to reject him. They told him up here in Matthew 21, he can't be. He's not from the right area. Well, when he was from the right area, they still didn't like somebody being called the king of the Jews because Herod's the king of the Jews. We don't need another king. We have ideas of a Messiah and this isn't it. A baby being born in Bethlehem is going to be the king of the Jews? Eh, That's impossible. They knew what the scripture said, but we see Romans 1 in action. They repressed the knowledge of God. They repressed the truth about who Jesus was. And so the whole city cries out, who is this? So the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, some people immediately say, well, wait a minute. They said he's king, he's Messiah, he's savior. Now they just say he's a prophet. Understand, this is prophet in regards to Moses's prophecy in Deuteronomy, where Moses tells us that the greatest and the final prophet is going to be the savior. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren. Him you shall hear, according to all you desire of the Lord your God in Horeb in the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God, nor let me see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, What they have spoken is good. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren, and will put my words into his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be that whoever will not hear my words, which he speaks in my name, I will require it of him. They were expecting the Messiah to be a prophet. Also, what they asked John the Baptist when he showed up? Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. The prophet. That was a phrase that meant, are you the final prophet, the greatest prophet? Are you the Messiah? Of course, John the Baptist said no. John six fourteen reads, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, this is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. Their proclamation from this throng from Galilee as they enter into the disturbed people of Jerusalem is that this is the prophet, this is the Messiah, and his name is Jesus of Nazareth. That simply can't be. They were waiting on a military leader to overthrow Rome. And he's not going to be from Galilee. He's going to be from Judea. And they didn't stop to answer questions. Well, this crowd that was disturbed, this is the crowd that demanded several days later that Jesus be crucified. What loss would it be to the world to lose some prophet from the north who can't even talk right? He's misleading throngs of people. He's a threat to peace. And they they could say that too because the very next verses, he goes into the temple and challenges religious authority. This would have been considered an act like a riot. It's, it's really amazing that the Romans weren't called to try to put this down. Of course, at this point in time, the Herods were ruling and Rome not so much. Now we know, by the way, that there was a another room, another house built right next door to the temple, just outside the temple gate that became the palace where Pontius Pilate lived. That's where Pilate would have seen Jesus. It wasn't a very long trek to take him from being tried by the Sanhedrin in the inner courts to take him before Pilate. He was just next door. And then that's where Pilate washed his hands and sent Jesus to be crucified. Well, when he comes to cleanse the temple, it tells us there, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and said to him, do you hear what these are saying? Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants? You have perfected praise. Then he left them and went out of the city of Beth to Bethany, and he lodged there. Now Jesus is going to exercise his authority at the temple itself. He goes to that outer courtyard. This now is where business was being conducted. And you you have to understand, this was not necessarily evil because people needed animals to sacrifice. So there were people there who had animals to sell for sacrifice, sheep and doves that were allowed for sacrifice. and. The temple itself, the chief priest had rigged up a system where you had to have a specific type of coinage to offer for the temple tax. And the only way to get that coinage was to exchange your money at the temple. So they said, we only accept one currency. Y'all are coming from all over Israel. None of you have it. This, I thought how to liken this and I figured out a way pretty good. Some of you are going to remember this. Do you remember the first time you ever went to Chuck E. Cheese? And you had to use tokens. It used to drive me nuts to go to an arcade, and it didn't just take quarters. You had to change the quarters and get the tokens. Without the tokens, you couldn't play the games. And then you realize how many, you know why they do that, do that so you don't realize how many quarters you're spending on that game every time you get a new life, right? Well, here's what the temple did. You have to have this special token, and it's this equivalent in your money, and there's a guy right outside the gate. You go exchange it, he'll charge a fee, and then you'll have money so that you can come in, buy animals for sacrifice, and offer the temple tax. Why is it always about where the money goes? Why is it always about where the money goes? So here, people are coming in, buying animals, but here's what changed. Previous generations, this was done outside the temple, not in the outer court. It was done outside before you got to the temple. But the priests realized that was not convenient. Because people would get all the way to the temple, realize they didn't have what they needed, have to be sent out to get what they got, and then they would get distracted. Squirrel, something would happen, and they wouldn't change the money and come back. So the priest said, move the booths into the outer courtyard. Bring the commerce into the sacred area. It's convenient. Uh, By the way, that's called pragmatism. It's easier. So when Jesus comes and sees this happening at the temple, he drove them out. John tells us he braided a whip. He turned over the tables of the money changers and seats of those who sold us. This would not have been in all of the outer court. It would have been in one small section. But as Jesus did this, this would have been a dramatic statement of his authority. Because he said, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Now, of course, he's quoting there from the Old Testament from what God had said. But you understand he's saying, This is my house. He's applying the verse to himself. The Bible says my house shall be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. Direct quote from Isaiah 56, verse seven. Even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Jesus instead, instead says you've made it a den of thieves. Uh, The literal translation is, you've made it a bandit's cave. This is the hideout where the bank robbers go after they rob the train. You're dishonest in your business. You're not actually facilitating worship at all. You're corrupt. Jeremiah 7.11 says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, even I have seen it, says the Lord. The priest had changed things. Pragmatism ruled the day. This was a false religion. He'd already confronted the teaching of the Pharisees in the Sermon on the Mount. He had already said, You're not teaching the truth. Go back to what the Word of God actually says. Look at the truth of Scripture. And so, by doing this, not only is Jesus challenging the priests, but he's purifying his house. Jesus came to clean his house. Zechariah fourteen twenty one says, yes, every pot in Jerusalem and Judea shall be holiness to the Lord of hosts. Everyone who sacrifices shall come and take them and cook in them. In that day, there shall no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. In Malachi 3, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi, the priests, and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in the former years. All of Old Testament prophecy now is focused at this one moment. Jesus has been declared the royal king, the savior and messiah. And now he is exercising authority in his house. And by his house, we mean the temple. There are those who see what happens, lame and others that come to him and he heals them. More proof about who he is. And it, it's, it says there, there were children. And this is small children who would have been playing or doing whatever in the courtyard while their parents were there crying out in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. The chief priests were indignant. These children are shouting blasphemies. Make them be quiet. And that's what they say. They they, they say to Jesus, do you hear what they're saying? Expecting Jesus to say, shh, y'all be quiet. That's blasphemy. But what does Jesus say? yes. He's not gonna stop them. He's actually gonna affirm what they're saying because he says, have you never read out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. That is Psalm chapter eight, verse two. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, you have ordained strength. Because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Jesus takes this verse with these children in this temple court on this day proclaiming this is the son of David and he says yes they said Hosanna save us he's the Savior and the Messiah. Son of David he is the king we've been waiting for. Their praise is right and the the way that he phrases this is that the verse in Psalm 8 2 refers specifically to God silencing his enemies by the by the cries and the the praise of little children who have sense to know who Jesus is and make such a commotion that the enemies of God have to be quiet. They're going to be overpowered by the shouting of praise from little children. Now, where did we start this journey? Think about it. When things changed and shifted and Jesus started teaching parables, what's the first thing that happened? They tried to bring the little children to Jesus. And the disciples said, no. And Jesus said, let the little children come to me. Now, who is it in the outer courts fulfilling prophecy, silencing the enemies of God represented by those priests in that temple who would rather conduct business than worship? And as they cry out and they profess who Jesus is. And when Jesus is asked, do you even hear what they're saying? Yes. And they're saying it to silence God's enemies. Jesus just confronted the chief priests and told them they were enemies of God Almighty. Now, the other thing that we do have to realize that's especially significant here. One of the reasons that the chiefs, chief priests were absolutely indignant was because that psalm speaks to praising God from the mouth of babes and nursing infants. Guess who's being praised in Psalm 8? Yahweh. For Jesus to apply that psalm to himself in the temple was to say to those priests, I am Yahweh. You understand now why things rapidly progressed through the week to his death. Because he went into their system, into their ground, into their territory and took it by divine right. Was proclaimed king, savior and messiah and applied the praises meant for Yahweh to himself. He stood in that temple and purified it because it was his house. Kind of a slow end then that he just went back to Bethany and stayed there. But you know what's significant? That means he and everybody that was with him just left the temple unaccosted. The crowds didn't follow him. Crowds were blown away. They were angry. They had to go meet in secret. They had to figure out what to do. It was probably just about this time that nobody missed Judas, but he went to talk to the chief priest to get paid so that they could capture Jesus, so that they could kill Jesus. The audacity of that man to come in here and to claim to be God and to claim to be our judge. We are the judges of Israel, they would say. And he's from Galilee. No way on earth he's the Messiah. From that point, they knew there was only one way this week was going to end. And they were willing to defile their court system and the Passover itself to put Jesus to death. Now you might ask then, why did Jesus provoke them to do this? Because God ordained before the foundation of the world that his son would be taken by wicked hands and crucified. Because there was only one way this week could ever end. This week in history, Jesus was going to die and God had determined the date, the hour, the moment in eternity past before he ever ever created anything that is. And you know when God determines something's going to happen, it's going to happen. Jesus rides into Jerusalem as the king, as the savior, as the messiah. You wonder then, one last point of application. You wonder then why it is that when Jesus' birth was announced, Herod went and killed all the children. You wonder why it is now that there's a war on children. And if you can't kill them before they're born, then we'll we'll mess them up so mentally that they don't know what they are by the time they're four years old, but apparently can make decisions that will affect the rest of their lives. You know why there's a war on children? Because when children come to Christ, the praise from their mouths silences the enemy. Because God's strength is proven in the praises of his people and their children. The least of these. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for this triumphal entry. For this cleansing of the temple. For Jesus showing himself strong, standing in his authority, and by divine right, taking claim to his house. We thank you for the new covenant that he came to institute by the shedding of his blood. For his willingness to endure the scorn, the indignation from the chief priest and from the crowds in Jerusalem but how we thank you for the praises from those children in the courtyard. Hosanna, son of David. Father, I do pray that you would move us to worship you more than we do, to praise you and to find that your strength is demonstrated in our praise. That when we who are the least of these proclaim your goodness and your greatness, your gentleness and your mercy and your grace, It silences your enemies. They can't explain how a new kingdom could be established by the death of the newly pronounced king. And yet that's exactly how Jesus did it. To establish a new kingdom of peace, he had to be killed. But then as he was raised to new life, in that new life... That middle wall of separation has been torn down. There is no Jew. There is no Gentile. There are only those who are not your children and those who are. Only those who are saved and those who need to be. Father, I pray that you would embolden us in our preaching to tell the world who Jesus is. They know it. By your spirit, help us remind them. And in that reminder of the gospel, draw your children to yourself.